Okay, this is the Nick August podcast, A Habit of Words, where I talk with writers and content creators about using and abusing language. Ryan, who writes about game and relationships from a red pill perspective. Ryan, welcome. Hey, it's been fun. I mean, it is fun. <laughs> First chance to get a word, and I already screw it up. <laughs> the pre the, the pre interview was fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, I appreciate you joining me. I've been looking forward to this. Uh, and the I think the the thing that struck me the most about what I've read so far that you've written is that uh, being from Alabama, one of my favorite things you wrote was in one of your newsletters where you talk about how your Alabama dress code wouldn't cut it in a Muslim country. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I'm glad you enjoy. Texans love how I keep using the word some such. Apparently that's a very Texas specific. Colloquialism. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, I didn't either. I don't know. I'm small town BC. We're in, it's like a whole different world when people start explaining things. Like yeah. I still don't know what the Midwest means. Most Americans don't either. It's somewhere. It's somewhere that's not the South and not California. And that's about it. Oh, you know, most, most people don't have a, have a, it's kind of like it's also kind of like defining the South. When people try to f define what the South is, they argue over, you know, is Maryland really the South still? Is you know, so there's a lot of that that goes on when people try to nail that shit down. Huh. Fair enough. We'll learn something new every day. Yeah. So, um, all right. Just, just to kind of get going, how would you describe the work you do? That I have never been asked that before. Um, do you want the? Uh... The internal answer or the external answer? Because I think it's going to be slightly different depending. I, want I, get, I tell you what, I'll start with the external answer because that one's more palatable. <laughs> I think you should go with whichever one is more offensive. <laughs> well, then we'll go with the internal answer. Um, I help, I show guys what it's like to be me, bare minimum average with the attempt to shame them into being something better because you should be able to get this far at least. If I can make it, you can make it. And then the rest is just throwing a work ethic behind it because I've noticed most of my competitors are very lazy. lazy. I think that's the best way to put it. Lazy in what way? Lazy as in they don't work. Um, <laughs> I'll use content like branding, I guess, is the good example in this. And I'm no, by no means a brand expert. And I don't think anybody is. I think that's the point though. Right. I've noticed that most guys love to be a brand. They love to get big numbers. They'll buy subscribers because to actually like write and produce and get better and treat it like tradecraft takes effort. It takes work and it takes patience, which means you probably have to have a nest egg saved up or an income stream on the side. Yep. Meanwhile, it's a lot easier just to uh, pay a news service to put your PR statement on the wire get onto a talk show to look like a fool in front of Pierce Morgan, and then hopefully achieve the same goals. Mm -hmm. Or, uh, yeah, it's just, I think it's because I'm from, I was raised on a ranch in small town BC. Done 12 years in the military for the Navy, so it's it's not even the hardest working element. Right. And when I got here, I found what I do is, like all I have to do is tell guys stories from a perspective of how does this help you, the reader. and then somehow an income stream comes out of that, which I'm still confused at how it happens. <laughs> but so many guys are either unwilling to experience life before they start talking about it yeah. or to write about it well once they have. 
or to put some effort in what they produce. So yeah, when I mean lazy, I mean literally the stuff that's not fun and self-aggrandizing, but still yeah. provides value to the to the. I don't want to. Uh, what's the better word to say? Readership, consumer, viewer, follower, subscriber. I don't even know which one is a proper relationship Audience. to describe it as. Audience, I guess. Whatever. Yeah, it's, it inflects through a lot of different media and contexts. I think. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's interesting though that you say that because. You know, I've, I've been watching you <laughs> and your, your cohorts on, on you know, the various webcasts and stuff for about a year, year and a half. And something that I notice about you when you answer questions, and this may either be, you know, this may be good acting or this may be legitimate. I'm, I'm interested to know. But you, you definitely, even the most basic questions that people ask you, when, when it comes around to you, you definitely seem to take a minute and really think about what they're asking and sort of, and, and a lot of times ask them questions back before you start just, you know, giving a canned response. Is yeah. that accurate? I'd say that's accurate, but that's the whole point of it. I, John mentioned last week, we were on a cast. I think it was his hot dude party, which awesome title, by the way, for a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know yeah. why. Um, that a lot of people are sheep in search of a shepherd. They just right. want an authority to ask questions and get answers to, which it seems like a very, people shouldn't be giving out that kind of responsibility lightly. And there's way too many people taking it lightly. Yeah. I mean, like you, I come from a, a corporate tech background prior to, after the military, you know, before this. Right. And so I'm, first thing I thought of is when I was doing any type of consulting was back to like, what would you do in Deloitte? You under promise and over deliver. You don't promise anything you can't deliver. And I'm like, right then that makes sense. Right. Why would you be telling guys that, you know, I'll get you nothing but nines and tens. Why are you telling guys that I'll fix your life? Why are you telling them that chakras is the key to happiness? It's yeah. something you can't deliver. Even calling yourself, like some people call themselves coaches. A coach is accountable to the team or the coach gets fired. And there's nobody in an online space who can do that. So I don't know what kind of shared delusion it is between the audience and the creator, but I don't like that. And then to answer into your question, when somebody's asking you something, you got to think there's most people just deal with the surface level question. How do right. I get my wife back? That's a surface level question. Doesn't tell you information. And that's where you can use a canned response because you're like, well, your wife thinks you need to be more alpha bro, just lift weights and whatever. I don't even know the canned responses. I don't pay much attention. Right. But there's a thing underneath and it's called process communication or subtext, however you want to describe it. It's the reasoning that got people to ask that specific question in that specific way. And it's part of what drew me to writing is because I'm starting to really enjoy that stuff the more I get into it. When a guy asks you just a simple question, how do I win my wife back? Well, there's going to be a whole process that got him to that question. And so when you ask these clarifying questions, and for me, it's because, you know, we I've been in this space talking with other guys, working on everybody's relationships for years. Most guys have the same story. And so when I hear a story, it sounds very similar to three or four I can think of off the top of my head. I'll ask a question to see if it's if I'm close to the mark or not. And if a guy's like, yeah, actually, she treated me badly. Um, eventually, I stood up for myself and now she starts liking me or, you know, I got cheated on and I think I can win her back. But then it's just pattern recognition. So when I when they're asking these questions, and you ask those clarifications, I have a pretty good idea what their underlying 
issue is, and it's never what they ask. Guy right. never wants to win back his wife because she cheated on him. A guy doesn't like the idea of being alone. And if that's the actual question, if you're just giving a canned response to his surface level question, not only are you doing him a disservice, but you're doing the 100 people that are actually listening to you a huge disservice because there's probably a good 10 guys in that chat who also have that same problem and are too embarrassed to ask. And I think this just ties to, and I blame the military training on this, the idea of taking your responsibility seriously yeah. and treating this as tradecraft as opposed to self-aggrandizement, if I'm pronouncing that right. I've never actually had to say that word before now, and I'm trying to sound smart for you, being all C-suite. I think it's right, but you know, well, remember, I'm from Alabama, so you know. <laughs> See, I don't have the I don't have that uh flyover state American mentality. I'm technically from Alberta originally, which is our Alabama, as far as I can tell. Yeah. I can only I can only I'm only allowed to be so pretentious before uh the uh you know the the police come and tell me that I'm I'm from the south. So I can't <laughs> I can't you know I can't I can't <laughs> What started that stigma in the States with the whole Southerns being stupid thing? Is that just like a civil war teabagging after the war or yeah, did a I bunch mean, of guys come out of there with like flipper babies or it partially that there's also some theory that goes going back to language there. A lot of the people that settled in the South very early on were from uh, parts of England and Ireland that were considered low class. Oh. And, and so a lot of the speech and everything. And so even though the language and the speech patterns and the sounds and everything have changed a lot over the years, there's a theory that, you know, the 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 swells and the effetes all settled in New York City and, you know, up in the north in Boston and uh, maybe even down into Virginia some. And then when you get down into like the Appalachian Mountains and 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 deeper, deeper inland and more rural, um, it was more of, you know, sort of. Whoever was considered the rednecks over there kind of, you know, were considered the rednecks over here. And it gotcha. It that. No um, blue bloods in Bama. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the Civil War didn't help any. So, <laughs> or actually losing the Civil War didn't help any. <laughs> yeah. yeah, to be accurate. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So, like, writing in, in this space, it, um, you know, there are a lot of good writers in the space, and the good ones tend to be the pattern tends to be more analytical, straightforward, didactic, I mean, didactic and deductive. And, and you provide that too. There's a lot of, Hey, if you want X, you know, do Y and Z, but you definitely go way more into storytelling and tell far more stories than I think anybody else I've read so far. And is that something that you just do naturally, or is that a deliberate decision to, either to think yourself from others or to be more effective rhetorically. It was a slog. It was, am I swear? Can I swear on this? Absolutely. Fuck yeah. It was a fucking slog. <laughs> uh, when I first started writing field reports and anything I had come from, so for my college time, I had got a graphic design degree. I didn't have to write for shit. Then I got into doing that. Didn't work for me so well. Joined the military did military writing. And if you don't know military writing, it's English stripped down to its bare minimum. Right. Like I was trained, don't use the word the. Just remove it from your lexicon. If you're talking about if you're talking about the subject member, it's no, talk about subject member, but it's all acronym. 
uh, as per SUBJ MBR ref message number. You know what I mean? Like it's English. Yeah. The words are there, but the only way you understand it is if you mentally can fill in five different words that you would use in English language just commonly. So when I started writing, nobody understood what the hell I was talking about. It was all acronym heavy. <laughs> I even still have that problem is I don't use pronouns. I just assume people know which pronoun I'm referring to when I'm telling the story. <laughs> yeah. So I've like really had to make an effort for that. And it took about two years till I could write like a human being again and right. had two years of people telling me I'm trash, which, you know, fine, fair enough. But the storytelling came partly from that. The fact that I needed to learn how to use language again, like a normal human being. All right. And partially from a lot of research I had done with uh, a lot of guys, the uh, last psychiatrist or uh, Vinkatesh Rao, another great source and evolutionary psychology research papers. I mean, there's, I had to learn how to read research papers, but right. the thing I came up with there was a lot of guys learn historically by stories. Before we had written language, we would share stories and stories were how we anchor our decision points. That's why I always talk about mental models. And it makes sense because if you think about the sphere, like even my old pickup days, it was literally instruction manuals on banging chicks. Works right. for me because I can think that way, but at the same time, people don't think that way. So until you get, and this is probably why there's a larger enclave of autism in the manosphere <laughs> than there is for just about anywhere else because it really appeals to that ultra systemized crowd. And problem with married guys is most of them tend not to be on the spectrum because they got at least one girl to fuck them. Right. <laughs> so when you take this all together, okay, people understand things in stories. And I kind of understood that myself because my stuff I understood through a story. So I started to realize that I could just tell a guy a thing like 1984 talking head, staring at the screen, preaching about, you know, hypergamy and blah, blah, blah. But if I was able to put it into a narrative structure, people were able to do that for themselves. And it was less of me preaching as an authority and more of me illustrating a concept with a narrative. And the one thing I noticed is it worked a lot better. So yeah, the reason I've tried to stick with it, yeah, like you said, is it's just, be, it works. It's It was literally a functional choice based on me not knowing how to write English and other people not understanding systemized language. Well, I mean, it's interesting that you say that because I, I actually wrote up an entire question that went into what you just said about um, storytelling and why it's so significant and why we why we respond to stories so positively. And, you know, part of that was, you know, just I've, I've not yet met anybody who is, is good with women or good at game who wasn't also a good storyteller. And, <laughs> and I, and so that was one of my questions for you is, is there a, you know, what's the relationship there? And, and why do you think that is, if that's even, you know, even, even if you actually agree with that statement? I do agree. It's because women think in stories, basically. You can't talk into your way to a girl's pants. You have to lay out the roadmap. Right. I mean, mar look at marketing. Marketing is all about stories. You can watch Real Housewives of whatever city they're in now. And even the editor just takes four bitchy housewives talking over appies on Tuesday night <laughs> and turns it into a drama-filled story and people are hooked on it. Right. So it's like just on its face, you have to understand that story is the most important thing or they would just be showing you unedited C-SPAN footage of the housewives. Right. 
as far as the pickup guys, I get it because when I was doing it, I started like most guys do. I didn't know what I was doing. So I picked up uh, Mystery and Neil Strauss's The Game and then The Mystery Method from a DVD. Already shows you, I didn't read the book. I watched the DVD. So that tells you like, okay, maybe story's got something here. It starts off with like a systemized three categories with three subcategories. And then you kind of go through it and it was okay. It was a huge slog. I had a lot of failure, a lot of failure. But then I kind of understood the underlying point as to each one, like why you tell, for example, um, I could do some backgrounds here, an opinion opener. You walk up to somebody you've never met her before. She's probably with a friend and you give what's called an opinion opener. You say, hey, this is like the stock thing that you're given. Hey, I got to go for a second meet with my friends, but I got a minute. I need you guys to help answer an argument for me. Um, he thinks it doesn't count as cheating when you're in a different area code. And I think it does. What do you think? <laughs> and it just sounds, and you can look at that as a systemized level. Like, okay, so I have to say A, B, C, and D. Stand there, bam, result X comes through. But then you look at it as a storytelling thing. And I think this is why most successful guys with women, naturals just pick this up naturally. So I'm just going to ignore them for now. Right. They understand the point. You say, when you're saying these things, there's a purpose. I'm saying I have to go back and be with my friends because I can't just tell you, I'm only going to bother you for a minute and then I'm out of here because that makes you look like a dweeb. Right. So you say that so they can infer, oh, this means he's not going to be bothering me all night like that other creep. Um, you mentioned you got friends in your story so people can infer, oh, so somebody else can stand the side of this guy. Maybe he's worth 30 seconds of my time. And then you just say you have an argument which shows right there, conflict. And girls love conflict because it's more interesting than talking about nothing. And then you make it sexual with that uh, cheating in different area codes. So automatically you, you're showing that I have friends. I'm not a creeper. <laughs> I have, I want to talk sexually with you, but in a very, you know, distant way. So we don't have to, we don't think anybody here is a slut. We're just talking about sex because it's fun, right? Right. And then all this stuff kind of happens and you realize there that's storytelling essentially. And then you real, and then the good guys know, well, I don't have to mention this same can script. It's the same thing every time. And there's no feeling behind it. So you can kind of, you bring your own stories in there and then it becomes kind of a game. It's like, what story can I tell today? I, I think the guys are better who tell stories because it just, it works. And once you get, it's just like uh it's like an evolutionary process. You do something, it starts to work, you encourage more of it, it stops working, you discourage it. I wish I could put some kind of like flowery language behind that, but I think it is just people that are willing to fail enough that they stop failing. And it just happens to be the way that works best. Yeah. And you know, it's it's interesting because there's a I mean, first of all, that's I never until after what I, I kind of came late to this thing, so I didn't read books about game or or look at any of this. Uh, you content. fucking naturals. <laughs> well, I, I wasn't a natural either. It was there was there was like years of trial and error, a lot of error, and I gradually figured out over time. Hey, you know, I'm good at I'm good at making up shit that's fun to talk about, and I can be funny sometimes. And I just rely. And I also uh, was an amateur musician. I played guitar, so I just use like all those as I used to. I used to think of them as crutches, but I, I just used to use those, and that always worked for me. There's a there's a great uh, scene in there's a movie uh, Lost in Translation with Bill Murray, mm -hmm. and he's in this uh, he's in this this cheesy lounge in a Tokyo hotel when uh, uh, he starts talking to Scarlett Johansson, and what he says to her is he doesn't you know he doesn't chatter mm -hmm. up 
ask her name. He doesn't do all that stuff. He says, hey, I'm thinking about staging a jailbreak. Are you in or out? And she smiles and she's, I'm in. And so they, you know, they banter about that a little bit because there's this, you know, there's this caper. They're both going to be in on them against the world. And uh, they uh, take that, you know, he, you know, that sort of kicks off their whatever it is you call their their unconsummated romance. But it's that same kind of thing. It's like if you can get them, you can get them talking and, and having fun about something imaginative that is, you know, not creepy. That that covers a whole lot of sins and get, gets you a lot farther down the road. Yeah. Well, there's a name for that. They called that the us versus the world routine. Well, you write about that in your in your uh, in one of the samples that I read where you were talking about uh, being in that place where you would you kept going to a different room and seeing if that chick would follow you and then, you know, get her to count. Oh. <laughs> The, the, the Omani flight attendant from Dubai. Yeah, dude, never again. She was six foot four. <laughs> I'm five foot nine. Yeah. The logistics alone, never again. <laughs> never again. Good story, though. That's one of the things I liked about your, uh, your writing. And one of the things I liked about your newsletter is that you know, and I hope this doesn't, I hope you don't find this insulting, but it, it they remind me of the old Dukes of Hazard television show. Dude, I love the Duke boys. And so, <laughs> well, you know, so, and, and, and why I say that is because the, you know, the whole show was action. There was a lot of action. There was a lot of story, a lot of stuff going on, but the whole thing was wrapped and occasionally narrated by Waylon Jennings, who would, you know, he would kick off the show with his song and he would set up the action. And then, you know, before commercial break or before something big changed, you know, he would say a thing or two to help you understand or punch home what actually just happened. And I see you doing that. That's a pattern that I kind of see in your, particularly in the sample of the book that you sent me is, you know, you start off, you know, you go all Bukowski starting off telling that story and then you kind of back off and explain the significance of it. Yeah. What can I say? I'm an 80s kid. I was raised, I actually had, the old pedal car of General Lee when I was growing up. The horn worked and everything. So I, I'm not surprised. But what do they say? It's like a good artist borrow and great artist steal. Yeah. So you know, maybe I'm I should change Alabama. the name of the book then to Jumping Over the Cliff. I'm from Alabama. I didn't even have a General Lee. So that's, that's ah. pretty good, man. Um, so, I mean, you know, obviously that's something that you consciously – you know, in addition to, you know, getting good with storytelling, obviously that was a deliberate technique to you know, tell the story, to draw them in, to illustrate what's going on, explain the significance of it, and then you move on into another story. And it seems like, even though I've just got, I think, two chapters or something, it seems like that's sort of the progression or the pattern that you're following in, in your book and how you're you're trying to use that technique to teach guys. Yeah, for the most part. I mean, a lot of it was me processing too, because I had forgotten a lot of this stuff. But you saw, like, the first chapter is me basically talking about how I was the kind of guy who remembered every girl I ever slept with, what her name was, what she looked like. And then one day I ran into a girl that I had never seen before in my life. And she already said we had slept together like a month before. So I had a little bit of a crisis of conscience there. <laughs> That was a great story, by the way. That was hilarious. <laughs> yeah, I, I still can't remember her name. I call her, I think I called her Sarah, but that's like my placeholder name. Right. I remember her from the Boom Boom Room. I remember she had straight hair. I remember she was native, but I cannot remember more than that. 
Well, that and then I had these stupid Chinese vases. I don't even think I put it in the story because sometimes I noticed a lot of details I had to cut because they were good for me, but they didn't really help anything on the story. So I'm like, even though I like them, it's got to go. Like nobody cares if I got two Chinese vases I took from a San Francisco flea market when I was on foreign port with a beret hanging on top of one of them. And that's how she knew I was in the Navy. Meanwhile, I kept telling her I was an accountant and I was like, ah, she caught me on that lie too. But I'm like, I'm already telling that story later on in the book. So I'm like, why tell the same part, same details twice? Just right. seemed, seemed masturbatory. And that's why I like the, I guess, stepping out of yourself is the best way to describe it. Because I don't want to take this too seriously. I see so many guys and they write these books and every single, like Tucker Max, great example. Not talking shit of the guy, but I hated that about the book is that the whole book was basically him spiking the football time after time. Dude, I'm awesome. I took a dump on the floor in a Mexican hospital. Everything I did is great. And I go, I don't think anybody wants to read about how awesome somebody else is for nine or however long it takes to read a book. Right. I don't even like watching a stand-up special where the guy talks about how great he is. I could barely handle Amy Schumer talking about her stinky vagina. <laughs> so I, I had to, I, I'm like, oh, how do I talk about myself? without making this all about me. And then that was why I had that solution. I'm like, all right, well, why don't I just do that? That old freeze frame trope where I kind of step outside the situation for a second right. and maybe explain some details so somebody can, which I think might be bad. I don't know. Well, I'll let you know when sales start to come in. Cause isn't the whole point of good writing that your audience gets immersed in it. Well, and I'm, yeah. And I'm consciously kind of taking them out of it. I mean, if you're writing fiction, I think, yeah, but I think in what you're doing, I think that I think that's an effective rhetorical technique because it's not it's really if you can if you can kind of objectify the whole thing, it's not really all that different from teaching a short story in a literature class. You know, everybody reads the story so they're familiar with it. And then the teacher, you know, you kind of step outside of the story and you say, OK, you know, you see what they're doing here. Well, either here's what this means or here's why they did it that way or here's what it's referring to. And so it's 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 I think it's a pretty common technique. It's just you're applying it in uh, in, uh, you know, in teaching about game and relationships instead of, you know, something more artificial, which is like a story in a classroom. Oh, fair enough. But yeah. I know it's my greatest fear on this is I hate ironic distance. I cannot stand it. I blame my generation because the Nirvana generation, as soon as they brought up the word try hard, everybody refuses to stand by anything anymore. Right. So everything always has to be shrouded in like three layers of irony where, yeah, I said this, but I didn't kind of sort of mean it and whatever. And I'll explain what I'm doing and it's all deconstructive. And I hate that crap. I, I miss, I miss eighties unironic action. That's like my true love. Like Rambo three, I think is the quintessential action movie. Like it's, no self-awareness. They don't want self-awareness. He's not supposed to be self-aware. He's supposed to be, you know, Captain America meets Superman meets the Punisher meets Stallone. <laughs> right. Like he realistically, he's like, I'm going to take this arrow on a bow and shoot through a chopper and take it out. And he believes that with every sense of being, there's no winking to the audience. I find it pandering and yeah. I don't like it. And I've noticed that's probably why people are getting pissed with a lot of superheroes movies lately, because it's 99% winking to the audience and they forgot to actually do what they were there to do. Yeah. So I've tried my best to avoid that only because I don't like it. 
Yeah, I don't so, think it, I mean, in what I've read, it doesn't come across that way. I'm actually, I'm the reason I'm looking forward to the book, especially now that I've seen a little bit of it, is I, I just, I like, I think everybody likes stories. I think everybody is, is, I think we're evolved to respond to stories. And I think that that is by far my favorite way to learn or hear about anything is, is there a story? And, you know, you start off that way. It's, when there's a teacher student relationship, there's kind of, you know, there's this, you know, there's more distance there. Usually there's more of a, of a hierarchy of power structure. But when you tell somebody a story, it's not so much it's egalitarian, but it's warmer, you know, people respond to that better and more readily. And I think that, uh, you don't have to be on. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I, you're right. I think the, I think the, you know, the ge- all the generations after mine, you have you're supposed to be aloof. If you're not aloof, you're not cool, and and that's how you're supposed to be. Whereas in the '80s, you're right. It was all, and you can look at our music for the most part. It's all you know, rock and roll, get laid, destroy a hotel room, and you know, <laughs> <laughs> don't worry about anything else. <laughs> Dude, that's I think that's the one thing that the Zoomers are missing out on. None of their musicians kill themselves anymore. <laughs> They're all they're all going vegan. I just realized, yeah. Like, think about it. When was the last suicide? Was basically Kurt Cobain. Tupac got murdered. Rappers don't get murdered anymore. It would affect their SoundCloud sales. Like, what are they doing now? They're marrying the Kardashians. Right. Right. Rock stars aren't throwing things out of a window. There's the occasional mumble rapper that overdoses on lean. So I don't want to say it's totally dead as a genre, but yeah. I really miss the days where like Scott Weiland is drunk in his apartment and the guy comes in to give him great story. I heard about that where he was, he's the stone temple pilots lead singer. Well, he was, and uh, he was just getting drunk in his room, huge depressive episode. But then as soon as he went on stage, he was on with the little snake wiggle dance and all that. And I'm like, yeah, that's like, it sucks that he killed himself like right after that. But I mean, it's still a cool story. And is I just like when people give a shit, I think that's it. Just giving a shit. Being willing to stand by something you say, no matter how stupid it is. Well, in, you know, in your somewhere in in the upcoming book sample that you sent me, you used, you used the phrase "soothing narratives," which is something that I like because it describes it. It, it kind of backs up, or at least supports a theory that I have, um, and it's something I see the way you write and the way you communicate what you're trying to teach you write a lot about the mental gymnastics we use to avoid reality. I'm a better person because of X, Y, Z, or, you know, I'm X, Y, Z, and therefore the rules don't apply to me or, you know, whatever. We use something like Shift that. the goalposts so that way whatever I said was right in this context, exactly. it doesn't matter. I won the general election. Why am right. I not president? <laughs> I, I, I have the moral victory. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, So and I'm kind of obsessed with the idea or the theory that people tend to, either lie to others or lie to themselves or both because at base being deceptive was a unique trait that homo sapiens excelled at. And it was a key to our dominance as a species and provided us an evolutionary advantage over the other early human species. I've read stuff about that. I'm not smart enough to understand all of the biology and shit that goes along with that, but that part made sense to me and it makes sense why I mean, it almost seems like 
one of the things that you and some of the other guys do who are, you know, working with men on, you know, dating and relationships and going through trauma and recovering from trauma, whatever, it's, you know, getting them out of that story they've been telling themselves in their head for so long that, oh, you know, yeah, we don't have a great marriage, but, you know, I'm a great guy because I go oh. to work every day and I do all this other stuff. And all those things may be true. You may be a great guy because of it, but it doesn't How's matter. How's it working out for you? They get so invested into that story that they can't handle anything that doesn't fit into it. And then when the woman leaves them, they just, it crashes. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, first of the self-deception thing, actually there's some awesome research on this. It's not just, that's what made us the best species out of the other ones we were trying to fight. It's as genders, it's helped us too. It turns out lying takes a fairly big cognitive load. It takes a lot of energy to lie because you got to remember the lie. You got to repeat the lie. You have to literally translate in your brain. What you know is what you think is true to what you know the lie is. Right. Um, it turns out one of our better adaptations to it, and it's mostly a female adaptation, but it's happening more among men now, is self-deception. It's not a lie, Jerry, if you believe it. <laughs> exactly. And my mother-in-law taught me this out of everything, because my my old lady, she complains about her all the time because, you know, she's a girl and that's what they do. And she keeps talking to me in this logical way, like I've trained her really well, and she goes, I don't get it. Like she's lying. I know she's lying. And I showed her evidence evidence and she just keeps doubling down on the line. She won't stop lying. And I, and I'm like, yeah, she believes it. She truly believes what she's telling you. It's the same as like a girl will say, yeah, I cheated on him, but it was his fault. Or I never really loved him. Or he's been abusive our whole relationship. Or, you know, I need custody. He, he was diddling the kids. He's telling that like all these lies. And I thought you got two ways of looking at this right. one. Either women are absolutely ruthless liars, and not only are they ruthless liars, but they're so good at it that they never crack. Or the alternative is they build themselves into a fervor to the point where they believe their own lies, and then it's not telling a lie, it's just telling a story. And I'm, I mean, you want to do the Occam's razor thing, it makes, it makes much more sense that we yeah. would lie to ourselves to the point where we believe it, and then it's just a matter of preaching the truth. You can roosh it up all day with that. Right. And that was helpful in that a lot of guys try offering advice and it never works. Guy will ask for advice. You give him advice. He'll argue with you. And you're like, why the fuck am I wasting my time with you? And then he goes, well, why do you have to be mean about it, bro? And if you get mad at him for ignoring your advice, then he's like, dude, just calm down. And you're like, I'm not the one who's not supposed to be angry. You take a break and you realize, yeah, it's like, uh, it's just about the stories. So if you can't, get a guy to stop self-deceiving himself. Like there's nothing you can tell him that'll work. And stories and trauma are the only two ways I've seen work. And I unfortunately don't have the patience or the, the resources to get every guy's wife to cheat on him. So he starts making sense. So I have to stick with stories. <laughs> God knows I've tried. Turns out some of these hoes is loyal. So <laughs> there's, there's a good, there's a good business idea right there. Just get a state <laughs> ads, dial yeah. it. <laughs> uh, well you know it's that's it's funny i posted a I, I tweeted something earlier today about a job i had when i was in my 20s oh and i saw I was, that one yeah i was still teaching and i was i i work i had a job at at a large public library system and one of my duties was to uh answer the grammar hotline phone number we had for people who 
were at work or wherever and they so were So that's a real thing. That's not just you using it as a rhetorical device. Like there was really a grammar Nazi hotline you could call. There was really argue about semicolons. There was a exactly there was a grammar hotline and I was it. And well my boss and I were it. And uh what it usually there were there were several people that we got to know who worked as copywriters or in marketing at different local companies who would call before they would send something to the printer and you know, just clarify something. Um, most of the time though, what we found out, it ended up being a couple of people at work arguing over something. And then they would call me to get the answer because they were trying to win a bet or something. And, and I would, and as part of our policy at work, even if I knew the answer, I had to cite them a source and I had to read it from the source. And knowing the answer just helped me look it up in the book faster. That's that's that was my that was all I was really good for there. And that was my I military career right there. I would read them the answer right out of the grammar book, and they wouldn't accept it, and they would start questioning me and arguing with me about it. And then I, I they at that time they they never trained me what to do if people wanted to argue with me and didn't believe it. So I didn't know if I should just hang up or if I had to just sit there and listen to them spew. <laughs> but there, there's there's definitely a, there's definitely a, a trait where you know once we're convinced of something we 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 won't let it go no matter how minor or trivial it is much less something as big as you. Oh, of make. course not. We'd rather be right than correct, and definitely more right than happy. Exactly. That's and that's every story. Every story. Every guy that complains about his wife looking for a solution will always say, I love my wife and she's great. She's a great wife, but, and then he goes on to describe everything that is antithetical to a great wife. <laughs> she doesn't sleep with me. She disrespects me. She doesn't take care of the kids too well. Uh, she hasn't got promoted at work in five years, but other than that, she's wonderful. And I'm like, <laughs> let's walk this back. Why don't you describe what is wonderful about her instead of saying all the exceptions? And right. then usually you get that, and. I love those moments when you can tell you actually reached a guy because he has to stop and think, but he's, but he took that beat a little too long. So he's like, I don't have an answer. <laughs> he finally, he finally pauses and realizes, Hey, maybe there's something wrong here, but. Oh dude, if you want to get that, all you got to do whenever anybody asks about, uh, talks about their relationship problems, just ask them. Okay. At the end of this, like after this conversation, if I had a magic wand, what would happen? Or what is your goal? What is your goal with this situation? And they don't even know how to tell you an end state that they're looking for. <laughs> Which is so weird because that lets yeah. me know you're not even really, like it's not even your own story if you don't have an ending. It's obviously somebody else's story. The happy wife, happy life. Uh, my pastor told me this. My parents want me to do that. But they don't know an ending. They just know somebody's reading them the book every night before bed. And oh, that's comforting. That's right. And, it's exactly like that. Yeah, and then the idea of like I'm, I mean, you and I are both kind of living it now to an extent. I'm doing my own thing, and right. it might fail. Nobody knows what this book looks like, but I'm kind of making it up as I go. And then, but I know the ending is going to be good. Well, I'm assuming it will be. I'm writing as if it is. <laughs> but I think people are absolutely terrified. They would rather live in a crappy story that they know and have read a thousand times than write their own story and they don't know what the ending is. But every chapter seems to be getting better and better. And I wholeheartedly believe that we're just very risk averse as a culture. And I, I want to blame that on low testosterone, but I might be giving testosterone too much credit. 
I think that has something to do with it, but I think it's also the narrative that, uh, you know, if you want to look at it, call it a blue pill narrative or whatever you want to call it, that, you know, kids are tend to be indoctrinated with from, you know, from birth to death, really. I think that has a lot to do with it too, because that's still, again, that's the story that everybody's contributing to, except it's, you know, it Serving ends up becoming- their best interests. Yeah. <laughs> right, it's in their best interest, and it en ends up becoming the script that people use to run their life by, and it totally lets them down. And then mm -hmm. you have all the problems that we see, you know, having. So um, I think the, I think that's, I think that's spot on. I can't believe you got paid to read about semicolon, like read people chapters on semicolons for a living. Meanwhile, I was hauling irrigation lines and feeding tails to cows. I was wasting my life. Well, I mean, yeah, but you got to look at it like this. So I got out of graduate school with a master's in English and couldn't get a job. And so I went and worked construction because that's always there. And, and I worked construction for a while on these, you know, just Working construction in August in West Alabama, you know, where it's flat, there are no hills and valleys. So it's just like the desert. You're just having the sun beat straight down on you all day that uh, I did that for a while. And then I finally got a call to uh, that uh, led to a teaching job at a college in my hometown. And so I literally went, went from digging I'll, ditches <laughs> I, well i was i was a cabinet installer and, and oh you were a damn trim carpenter <laughs> no no it wasn't it was more like commercial cabinet so it was a little bit of trim carpentry but it was like those big particle board laminated industrial cabinets and like they use for nurses stations and hospitals and, yeah, and yeah. shit like that so i went from that you know i left there on a friday and then you know a week later i was in a classroom teaching english and writing and that was weird, but you know, I had, I, I definitely had, I had my uh, my shit jobs, if you want to call them that too. But I actually, I actually enjoyed it. I was almost ready to just throw in the whole teaching gig, hope, and just go with back to ditches. Because <laughs> it was, it was. I mean, hell, I mean, I got to travel around the state. I got, you know, my meals and my hotel were comped. I got to, you know, I was always in a different city every few days. When you're a young guy, that's a lot of fun. Yeah, that's true. Oh, yeah, don't get me wrong. Navy did that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same kind of thing. Uh, Although most of my first year or two sailing was mostly around the West Coast. I saw so much of Seattle and Southern California and uh, Northern Mexico, like Ensenada. Yeah. So I was really glad when we finally got to deploy. We circumnavigated the Earth, got to travel a bunch. But I'm with you there. I still found more. I, I actually got more. Um, what's the word for it? Self-fulfillment from what I was teaching. Okay. Is I there, did enjoy that. Is there a lot of, uh, you mentioned uh, Bukowski and the other stuff that sort of influenced the, the three pieces of how you put your book together. Is there also some travel writing in there too that comes from the Navy days? Not, well, I mean, the stuff that happens during travel, sure, but I tried to keep it mostly on point about sexual dynamics and like a self-actualization that came out of it. Yeah. Not so much travel tips. I didn't really like, I could, I talk about stuff that's happening in Dubai, but I don't describe Dubai, Dubai too much other than I hadn't seen a girl in like three, like a month. And we went <laughs> to the ramp and then chicks with burkas on that had like henna tattoos over their eyes started to look really hot there for a while. <laughs> 
Which it's the craziest thing when I realize that I'm just like I fucking a girl in a burka and I'm like this used to get you killed and now I'm just laughing it up with a buddy who's got a t-shirt that says you know I don't fuck fat chicks in a in a conservative Muslim mall while BJ Cox that's his real name goes to the uh, goes to the uh, ski lodge in the desert. BJ Sometimes things are just yeah. I, remember, I love it. <laughs> he and his his claim to fame was he got naked in every foreign port. In he wasn't public? even drunk. He just, yeah, in public. He just did that. And he was weird. He had this concave chest, really squirrely. He looked like Mr. Burns. <laughs> a 23-year-old Mr. Burns. And the, the weirdest part about the nudity was he did it in like a library in Muscat, Oman. Wow. Yeah, which, and if you don't know, like, obviously Dubai is a conservative Muslim place, but they got their economic areas that he did it in. Oman is the back country. That's like buttfuck nowhere Middle East. Like okay. they just opened their doors to foreigners three years prior. Yeah. Thailand, nobody cared. Everybody was just like, you need me to do your laundry? Like, do you want? And he's like, no, no, I'm just getting them some air. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought these stories are all great, but they don't really, they don't push the story forward. They don't help drive right. any of the points across. And I didn't really learn anything from them other than there's very few consequences for people ever. But right. that's, that's something I could tell you in like three paragraphs. Well, I mean, it, you know, just having examples from other countries is kind of interesting, too, because it, it lends something else. It's, it's more than just, you know. Oh, yeah, we're all the same. We're all the same. Eggs. When, you know, the, you describe your book as similar in style to Bukowski. Well, I, let's walk that back. Let's qualify that some. <laughs> An homage to, to Bukowski. I would, the eighth grade reading level to Bukowski. Well, I mean, I, I can live with that one. <laughs> well, I mean, you can you can affect the style even if you don't think you hit the quality, right? So, uh, I mean, the, the style is definitely there. And is that because you're a big Bukowski fan, or is that because that style of of storytelling comes more naturally to you, or what? I think naturally. I actually I hadn't read Bukowski until maybe a year ago when I started writing these things. Because okay. Troy Francis actually got me onto him talking about it. And I thought that was kind of neat. And I had just finished reading Delicious Tacos book, The Pussy. Yeah. And he had sent me a signed copy of his newest one, which is uh, And Now for Some Good News. Awesome book, by the way. It's like a novella, 150 pages. I don't know if you've read that. Yeah, I've got it. I've got it. Yeah. And so I thought this is cool. So like, I got to give Bukowski a try. I never liked it in college because every thought that I knew, they weren't called thoughts back then. We just called them chicks, but whatever. Right. Um, they always had them on like the on the on the dining room table next to their birth control pills. <laughs> and I was, uh, yeah, she also likes pink rose wine. I don't think I'm going to drink rose or read Bukowski. So it took me it took me a long time to get into it. I had to acquire a taste for it. And now I can appreciate it. The stuff that I loved reading beforehand, if you can understand, it was actually like Twain. Okay. I love Twain. Uh, his essays on what is man, I think, are underappreciate like they're not underappreciated it is twain after all they named the award for good writing after the guy so but right. nobody reads it everybody reads marcus aurelius's meditations everybody reads uh francois de la rochefort's uh uh i can't remember what to call it it's another m word not meditations not musings but anyways all those different ones that are just like bible bible passage 
type aphorisms with a voila at the end, like here's wisdom, wisdom, paragraph form. Here's another piece of wisdom. Literally a collection of tweets from the 16th century or what was Aurelius, like 300 BC or 300 AD? Yeah. Yeah, and so all these people are looking onto this stuff and I think they like it because it's so far in the distant past that it has that otherness quality to it. It's the same reason that people like doing yoga and saying they're spiritual by you know eating mushrooms. Yeah. <laughs> but what I like about Twain is it's common enough that like it hits home better. Like he talks about he talks about men as if we're a steam engine. And that's something new. Like you can you can understand what that is. You know what pig iron is. You know right. what he's getting at. And he uses the simplest language I've ever seen in a book to describe such complex topics. It reminds me of that. Uh, you ever seen that Twitter account, Thog? Yeah. Yeah. yeah the guy, guy who's tweeting as a caveman. He just right, reminds yeah. me of that. And I really do like that guy. Well, but that's what I liked about it because it misses the part about language is it can be so easy to get pedantic. Like French is notorious for this. Every five out of 10 letters in French are silent. Right. And they did that because you could tell the difference between the aristocracy and the common man because the aristocracy knew which all the hidden letters were because they were literate. Meanwhile, the peasant farmer didn't know how to read and didn't know how to write. So it gave like that separation between somebody and their language. And I never liked that. And I think Twain best exemplified how to strip something down to its core for not only to be well understood, but it misses any pretense. It's literally just him sharing ideas. That's cool. I've never read those. I've, I've never read those either. So I'm definitely going to put that on my list because uh sounds good. Yeah, they're easy reads. Like I said, I mean, obviously. Well, one, <laughs> of my, thing I like. favorite, one of my favorite, my favorite, I think my favorite quote of all time comes from Twain. And he said, I don't remember where or in what, but it was, uh, he was riffing on necessity is the mother of invention. And he, he inflected that as necessity is the mother of taking chances. And I always liked it put that way better. Um, and I think it makes, I think it's, I think it's more vivid. It makes more sense. And, yeah. you know, it, it's like. Uh, it gets the connotations right. Right, exactly. And uh, so like the, getting back to that, getting back to quotes, I have a few that I read that I thought were interesting. And I think one of the things that I like. Mine or somebody else's. No, yours. These are yours. So Before you, you start. Know. I got a funny story for you. Do you want it now or do you want it after? Yeah, go ahead. Shoot. Um, on my first course, during the course party, after we had finished, I was training on their, their what's called QL3 trades qualifications training. Yeah. They actually gave me a small pamphlet, four page long pamphlet. And they literally wrote down all the quotes that I had said during course that were just so funny. They thought they had to remember. I have it in an accordion file up here. And I don't know why, but you just gave me this huge nostalgic boner right now. But yeah. please go on. <laughs> that's hilarious nobody ever did that for me when i was teaching so i don't think anybody was listening anyway it was i was teaching i was teaching college english so you know none of those kids wanted to be there anyway oh yeah um i think one of the things that that distinguishes you and i think probably also carl from a lot of the other content creators in the sphere not that they don't necessarily agree or have the same approach but you guys tend to be, and you in particular, tend to be particularly brutal about focusing on the pragmatic and trying to, you know, 
cut through all the bullshit stories people tell themselves that guys tell themselves. And also, you know, you blame me. Not at all. No, I, that, <laughs> the reason I like it. Um, but it comes down, you know, you, you, you make this quote, you, you make, you, you make this statement in, in one of your sample chapters and it's, uh, and I, this is one of my favorites. Man has no intrinsic value. The only reason others have him around is because he's useful. And I agree with that, of course, but that runs so counter to anything that's not that I consider you guys in the self-help space, but that runs so counter to all the other bullshit you hear out there where everything, everybody is valuable, everybody's important. And of course, if everybody's important, nobody's important because it's all the same thing. Yeah. Um, and you, and oh, you yeah, the participation culture is fucking yeah. ridiculous. And you, and, but I think that's, I think it's, it's interesting that you take it that far. Do you think that, does that get people's attention or does that turn people off? Or do you even know when you, when I you... have no idea. Um, I, I can't remember who told me, or maybe I read it. I don't know, but it's something that I've definitely internalized and that the worst thing you can do as a creator of anything that you even hope to have meaning from is to take any advice or direction on how to create that from the audience. And I wholeheartedly agree. I'm actually on like a block on site when people start telling me how to make my own content. <laughs> it's, it's frustrating on like a visceral level. I don't like it. And I would hate to, I would almost hate to know if me saying something like you ain't shit and that's okay resonated or not. Because if I could find out it resonated, then I would be like that two-year-old that falls down and everybody in the family laughs. So he starts falling down eight more times, but they're also artificial. It's not funny anymore. He doesn't want, he doesn't understand why he's not still getting cookies for falling down. Exactly. And then if I found out it didn't resonate, well, obviously I didn't just invent that out of nowhere. It came from a place and it had a thought process and I wholeheartedly believe it's a good one to have. Yeah. If I find out it doesn't resonate and then I start changing that to be more engaging. Yeah. Then at that point, I might as well just go back to corporate because right. then I'm just doing something that I don't want to do. And if I'm going to do that, I might as well get paid better. Exactly. So yeah, I kind of, I'm going to plead ignorance is bliss on this one. Okay. Fair enough. The, There's uh, an audience for everything. There's literally like incel, incel porn or uh stepsister porn. Like there's, if stepsister porn could get 15 million views, then I'm pretty sure me just throwing out a cuss word every now and again, will be just fine. <laughs> Do you think, uh, well, here's something that I think from ha having read your stuff, it's, and every, every, these, every one of these interviews I've done so far, I have what I call the sketchy monkey question, Ooh. which is, which is akin to like, you know, a monkey going out on a limb that, you know, may or may not hold his weight and it's going to break. And so I always make this assumption and, and come to this conclusion and then I throw it out there and see if I'm right. So, it, you know, it seems to me that... Fuck that anticipation. Writing, <laughs> writing for you is more than just... Even though I've, I've heard you say before, this is just about, you know, I'm trying to get things out as quickly and cleanly and as simply as possible. But you you seem, just judging by what I read, you seem to kind of enjoy the process because you do, you do play with language a lot and you go the extra mile in creating metaphors for things and... And stuff like that. When you, you know, there's a passage in, in one of your newsletters where you were talking about you compared 
you know, getting hooked on a woman to getting hooked on black dragon, you know, all oh, that, yeah. all that kind of stuff. <laughs> but the thing I liked about it, let's see if I can find it here that you capped it off with the thing about he just, in the end, he just goes and steals his mom's TV and sells it. for yeah. <laughs> I remember that one, but here, as, I love that. I, sorry. There was a question. I was just going to ramble, but I want to hear there was a question at the end of this. I want to hear about this monkey branch thing. Well, the, yeah, the statement was just, it seems to me like you, you do enjoy the, you, I, I don't know whether it's the process or just playing with language, but it seems like you do enjoy it more than it just being a chore, even though it may be a chore sometimes too. Uh, I get, I, a process would be accurate, I guess. It's not quite how I think about it though. Um, I think of it literally like tradecraft. Originally, I came from an art background. Um, painting was like one of my one of my core courses, art history, uh, graphic design, drawing. There's actually a course called drawing. You'll never believe it. There's only like one book required. Um, actually, that's a joke. There's a few. But I remember, and where was I going to go with this one? Oh, yeah. So artists used to be like masons or cobblers. An artist wasn't a fancy dancy philosophical person. Right. Michelangelo was commissioned to paint the Sistine Chapel. He was given a task and he had his skills. He has like he had to learn how to build scaffolding, all that stuff. I'm just using him as an example, not really for any reason other than to say this. Art never became about your feelings until photography was invented. 1800s. And then art had this huge existential crisis. If us painting the natural world real with realism isn't art, then what is art? And the last 200 years since then have been the midlife crisis of people with paintbrushes. Some things worked. I mean, Picasso stole from African cultures where they had a hyper stylized, uh, for example, the Syrian empire. When they would draw, when they would do sculptures of lions and that, they actually drew it from multiple dimensions because you would either look at it 90 degrees or, or 180 degrees. Like we're always at one of the cardinal points when you're staring at it. Right. But if you turn to like view it at like an isometric angle, you would see the lion has like eight legs because they're always assuming you're looking at it straight on. And so then Picasso did that. He drew multiple angles at the same time. And that was his take on it. That's what art means. It worked okay. Um, the Baroque kind of started and then modernism came by where they started shortening the picture plane, thinking that it went from the Renaissance, which was this huge giant landscapes to the Baroque, which is more like theatrical productions with a, a stage sized depth of field modernism. They tried to make it shorter and shorter and shorter. And then the picture planes kept getting shorter until eventually. And I cannot remember the name of the artist. He just put white on a canvas and threw it up in the museum. And he's like, there, that movement's over now. <laughs> and it's funny because I hear people talking about art and this will get to the point of using the black dragon term in a second, but <laughs> and I look at people who look at modern art and they go, this is just a white canvas. This is ridiculous. I could have done this myself. And I go, if you understand why it's there, it all of a sudden isn't just a white canvas. It's the most fascinating dunking on like 50 years of part artists and painting and art history around. And yeah. it's just, and now you can actually enjoy stuff like that where, or where Carav Caravaggio used to draw Jesus with 30 feet. Church hated him for that. Everybody looks at it now, think it's like a classical work of art and the West needs to go back to it. Meanwhile, the Catholic Church was ready to lynch the guy. Right. So when you see a lot of the modern work now that's just meant to shock, like Jasper Johns drawn like messed up American flags or guy who defecates on something and puts that up on there. Like it all comes from that same vein of just 
saying something just to piss somebody off. Right. All of a sudden, art takes on and you realize it's just visual philosophy. So when I I see that and I like it, the problem is I find, at least with writing, from the people that I've read and I don't like versus the ones that I do like, is the ones that I don't like are treating literature the same way that people treated art when the camera came out. But I don't think there is uh, a corollary between writing and whatever else. I guess you would take videography or like cinematography as the as the book killer. Yeah. But I don't think it works the same way. So I don't think books have had that existential crisis moment. But when I see people do it, and I like doing it as tradecraft, so every day I try to do better. If I'm uh, writing a script, and script writing is different than book writing, I'm finding that out the hard way. I'll play around with metaphors, not because I like the sound of my own voice, but because if somebody's going to take an hour out of their day to read an essay of mine, or my goal was 15 minutes in an email, 15 minutes, 500 words. If somebody's going to take 15 minutes out of their day for this, I want to make sure they walk away with it, like with time well spent. I want to give them like 30 minutes of value for their 15 minutes of time. And I just give it to like a thousand people and then everybody wins. Right. So it was all an iterative process on how can I improve this from one day to the next? And then sometimes it's, well, maybe play around with the metaphors, maybe like that black dragon metaphor. I like that one because it's not just comparing chicks to heroin. I specifically use black dragon because that kind of romanticizes the idea of a heroin addiction in the same right. way that, Oh, my wife is great except for, you know, she'll never fuck me romanticizes women as like the Virgin Mary or Madonna. Oh, thanks babe. So when I say that, the meaning I thought behind that one was this is great because it adds such a ridiculous amount of, uh, of romanticism to what's just banging chicks. It kind of illustrates how silly the romanticism is. Yeah. And that's when I put that and eh, you just steal your mom's VCR to get another fix. Anyway, I also add that, but I like to me, it just, it really clicked. I'm like, Oh my God, this is what good writers actually feel like. I don't know if it's what they write like, but it's what they feel like. Right. And so, yeah. yeah, that was kind of the choice for there. So it's not so much that I enjoy the process, although I do. It's not so much that I enjoy the end product because I don't. It's more that I want to make sure that I'm learning every time I do it. So every piece of writing I put out is better than all the ones I put out before it. And that the person consuming it from the other end gets value for the amount of time that they put into it, which sounds more... I don't know. It sounds like, yeah, tradecraft is the best way to describe it because it's not flowery well, like language. It's not changing the world. It's like just literally an economic exchange, but but taking it seriously, like unironically. Well, I'm going to be like all the people that used to argue with me about grammar, and I'm going to and I'm going to argue with you about your own response about what your own motivation is, because <laughs> because when you write shit like about when you describe your roommate as a giant breasted, fun-loving, borderline tattooed sailor magnet. <laughs> you got to be fun there, buddy. <laughs> Oli, dude, Oli is awesome. <laughs> he asked, and that line, that's one of the few things I remember is when he was talking about my, when I went to ship and, cause I, I think you're reading the story about where I almost slept with my uh, coworker's fiance the first day I met him during the stag. Is that oh. what that one's from? I don't remember. I just pulled that out and wrote it down. So yeah, yeah. I I added a bit to him because I loved him so much, man. But uh, he's the kind of guy that, for fun, I used to just poke him with a stick while he was trying to get work done in his desk. Like we used to live together. Yeah. And it turns out nothing pisses somebody off more than just poking him with a stick for like an <laughs> hour. 
but it just ogre seems so fit. plus he did look like an ogre and he was covered in tattoos but yeah <laughs> yeah fair enough i guess all right maybe you're right i don't know well i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna give you the coup de gras here and then we can wrap it up the other one i wrote down was uh you were describing um supervisor on ship a bastard who smoked like it was the 1960s and cancer was a liberal conspiracy <laughs> that's that's that could be starting out as some kind of damn detective novel or something okay to be fair that is me winking at the american audience i'll grant you that <laughs> um <laughs> you win this round damn it, right. dr claw this is that's the first one I've I've won. Everybody else shut me down pretty hard. You were you're at least a little bit open minded about it. Uh, <laughs> when uh, all right, so when when ballpark uh, does the book come out? When can people be looking for it? My goal is to get it out before April seventeenth. In practice, Rollo was supposed to have his book out in December, and it's now March. So where I, is I, I don't know how to process that, but it's going to be on Amazon. I'm going to do the self-published thing. Yeah, go ahead. And uh, and just in case anybody is watching this who doesn't already know who you are, which probably won't be that many people, uh, although yeah. I hope um, where can people find you? Uh, name is Ryan Stone. Find me at ryanstone.com. On Twitter, it's underscore Ryan underscore Stone. More shit posting than content, so I wouldn't start there. Um, the YouTube just channel is like slash C slash Ryan stone there where I put this stuff into where I work on the script writing part and the cinematography part and put it more to a visual format. I think those are the three big places. I got an Instagram, but whatever you want to see pictures of me cooking, go for it. What? Yeah. That's, yeah. That's what I tell people. It's the, uh, it's the cooking show for broken men. <laughs> Dude, that was <laughs> clever. I, it started off just because I needed, I didn't have time in the day to film when I was writing so much. And mm -hmm. I'm like, well, I'm already making lunch. I'll just film it. And then I'm like, hey, I could just talk about whatever in the yes. relationship stuff, like really serious topics. And then I'm like, well, hold on a second. Let's scramble these eggs. And I liked that <laughs> juxtaposition of such a mundane daily activity and like the existential crisis of a guy's wife cheating on him. I don't know why it works for me. <laughs> Does that, when you say, well, now just to clarify, when you say working on script writing, is that script for your, your own videos or something else? Yeah, well, for my own, for the most part, nobody's asked me to script for them. Okay. It's, but yeah, I've, I have noticed it's different writing when somebody's going to speak and writing when somebody's just going to read. Okay. And to be fair, I kind of like script writing better. I don't know why. It's just more enjoyable. Takes all kinds, man. <laughs> what a very pleasant way of avoiding your opinion on that one. <laughs> that one it's like, it's like uh, everybody... It, go, it goes back to the idea that um, people approach, first of all, people distinguish between, you know, highbrow literature and then lowbrow writing, which I think is is pretty lame to begin with. And then there's also the, uh, you know, I was I was in academia for a little while and I left it for a reason because it's it's a, just a shithole. Flexing. It's all flexing. All flexing. And then there's the, you know, there's the treating treating writing in general like it's you know holy scripture or something or magical and i think that all gets back to yeah you can have your favorite i have my favorite writers i have guys that i'm extremely impressed by that i you know that i love i love their work but 
that's where it stops. You know, I'm not interested in worshiping them or, you know, or anything. And in academia, especially, and in the publishing world, kind of the Northeast publishing world, it tends to be that way. And it's, and it's, I'd like to see that. I'd like to see that change because there are more, especially now that there's the internet and people have the ability to distribute their own work. There are more opportunities for more people who write good stuff to get it out there. And I think that's a, that's a good thing. And hopefully changes the perception that people are, you know, writing out of godlike inspiration rather than just telling a good story. I hope so. That's the problem too, is it's like porn. It saturates the market so much that like you could be the hottest porn star ever with no views. And I think right. that's the only problem with writing is that you can't just be a good writer now because those gatekeepers aren't there to keep out the riffraff. Like, I don't mean riffraff as in like lowbrows. I mean, riffraff as in like can't put no. pen to paper. Yeah. So you have to become, everybody has to become a marketing agent as well. Which, right. and I know a lot of people hate it. Delicious Tacos, he complains constantly how he has to market his own book because there's no publishing unit. Even if a publisher wanted to, they technically use the author's clout as their marketing tool. So he's like, well, why do I even want you just to take a cut of the proceeds? No, I'll handle that on my own. Well, I'll just go ahead and break all the rules and throw in my own plug for myself because I'm. that's what my... Punch Riot project is ultimately going to be a way for self-published writers to have a marketing platform that works for them rather than the other way around. And so if I'm successful at that, that's one of the things that I want to do to kind of make that better. So that's that's kind of why I'm doing author interviews. That's kind of why I'm getting into all of this space is because I'd like to see that. Yeah. Well, I saw your comp or comps for that. It would look really good. Thanks, man. It'll be um, uh, so. Is it at the end of the day? Are you trying to do something like Vox Day is doing with this Castilia House thing, or I'm not, just not comic based? I'm not familiar with what he's doing, but what I'm I'm doing I'm doing a couple of things. I'm launching a website, which is going to be you know the website for the company, and but it'll have you know it's going to have a lot of stuff about writing, stuff about self publishing. It's going to have ways for people. I ultimately. To uh, to integrate with some other like Amazon stuff and and sell their sell their stuff through that platform and hopefully by getting a big audience for my platform that will create value for authors where they can come and sign up and join and distribute their stuff that way through the website by giving them a um, tapping back into my software engineering days uh, kind of phase two of this whole thing as I'm building a kind of a social media platform that is where an author can create a profile page and integrate integrate with Twitter, integrate with all the other social media and stuff out there, but also have access to whatever's going to be on, on the site. So that's there's that part of it. And then I'm also publishing a magazine that ultimately I hope will be a weekly. Right now, I think it's going to be bi-weekly. Um, but it's going to be a literary mag with mainly, you know, fiction and and other creative kind of writing in there, and maybe some essays too that are either you know humorous or creative or something. And uh, that's going to be that part of it. And that's going to be subscription only. So what I'm hoping is that enough people want to read the magazine that they you know pay for pay for the subscription for the magazine, get that every week or every month, and then I can use those funds to pay writers to write, which will hopefully get you know the best writing I can in there and kind of proceed that way and just bootstrap it, see where it goes. Hey, if Roosh can do that with Return of Kings, I'm sure somebody who's competent can do it too. <laughs> <laughs> and if they can't, I'm going to give it a shot. So 
Um, that joke, dude, that's the best thing ever. Have you, you got to admit, seeing people like stumble into success beside themselves, you're like, ah, oh, so if they're doing all right, I'm not starving in the street. I don't mind. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah I, I, that doesn't, nothing ever, uh, none of that ever slows me down anymore. I throw all kinds of stuff at the wall to see what'll stick. And uh, that's kind of been my approach to, um, to life. And I've, you know, I've, I've gotten, I've gotten some great jobs and some great experiences that way. So Hopefully that will, um, if I can make that work, like we were talking about during the pre-interview, yeah. I can make that work, then I, I would rather be going in that direction with my career now than continuing the path I was on, which was great, but I'm kind of tired of it. Oh, that'd be awesome. Eventually get your lifelong dream of building cabinets. That's right. I can end up <laughs> going back to that. <laughs> This has been a habit of something. I'm not sure what, but we had a good time. And uh, Ryan, I appreciate you being on. No, it's a blast. Anytime. I'd love to be back. Yeah, we'll like, Hopefully I have a book actually finished this time so I can call myself an author without like a shred of irony to it. Yeah, we'll do it. Uh, we'll do it again once the book's out and some people have had a chance to read it. And then maybe I can leverage that to get more views for my stuff too. <laughs> Works for me. More all clout right. for all. That's right. We're out.